for those who don't know me, I'm a retired naval officer and chaplain and a retired seminary professor, but I'm not yet a retired grandparent. We just had two of our young ones, uh, grandchildren, with us this past week. And I'm not retired from learning from the Lord and serving in the body. We never outgrow that. But I'd like for us to turn in the scriptures to our um, text this morning. And uh, I've, I've needed to pick a couple of passages that go together. First, from Mark, Mark chapter 3 principal text for us. Verses 20, and I'm going to go ahead and read to the end of the chapter, uh, past verse uh, 30. Um, and here we read from God's Word, Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through uh, 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebub. It's by the prince of demons he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out, drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And then in chapter 6, verse 3, just that verse. Uh, Jesus has preached in, in uh, context in his hometown, and people say, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, 
Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Finally, Acts chapter 1, verse 14. After the resurrection, we read, They all join together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Thus far in God's word this morning, we'll look at these passages and others. Let's again look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, who's sufficient for these things? We need your Spirit's work in each of our hearts to understand properly and to have the purpose of obeying what you say to us. Pray that you would continue to work in my heart through these verses. And in the hearts of your hearers here assembled, I pray. Oh, pour out a blessing, I ask. A blessing of conforming us to the image of Jesus together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, uh, I heard the uh, very sad news of the daughter of some missionary close friends. And that daughter had uh, effectively repudiated Christianity in order to marry someone she'd fallen in love with. He happened to be a Muslim, and she went to live with him in a Muslim country. Now, she'd been taught the gospel. She'd seen it modeled beautifully within her own family for 30 years. Her brothers and sisters all came to faith in Christ early in life and are living to serve him. And yet, she rebelled. How could that be? Well, first of all, let's learn from the text that it's possible to live in the very closest association with the reality of Jesus Christ and still refuse to believe in him. The whole narrative we've just read shows us that. It's interesting if we were to turn over to John's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 5, uh, the context there is uh, his brothers and sisters, the Passover feast uh, is coming up, or the Feast of Tabernacles, rather, one of the three great annual feasts uh, in Jerusalem. And his brothers say to him, get out of here. You're doing all these, this preaching and performing these miracles. You want to do those things? You want to draw a crowd? Go do it in Jerusalem. That's the big time show. Go do it there. And then we read in verse 5, For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Let me just make an aside here. Jesus was the firstborn of his mother Mary. Conceived, the scripture tells us, supernaturally, miraculously, by the Spirit of God. We're told her betrothed husband, Joseph, had no relations with her until after Jesus was born. And the construction of that verse in the original language implies that that normal marriage did uh, 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 commence after Jesus' birth. 
It's not true that Mar it's not true biblically that Mary was a virgin all her life. The Bible does not hold up perpetual virginity as a special value. It hallows marriage. And it's not wrong to be single if God calls someone to celibacy, but that's not a higher calling than marriage and raising a family. Both have their place in the economy of God. And the scripture indicates that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now they're younger brothers and sisters that are half brothers and sisters, if you will. They have the same mother, but Jesus did not have an earthly father, according to the scriptures. If that's a problem for you, I can't help it because I can't remove the scandal on, the scandal, the stumbling block of the miraculous uh, conception, birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's central. The God who spoke into being all the cosmos is easily able to do that. But Jesus had brothers and sisters. They're younger than he. I want you to imagine yourself, kind of hard, I know, but imagine yourself as growing up in a home with a carpenter shop in it. And you've got other brothers and sisters, and they're just like you. You run around, you play a little bit, you work some, you uh, compete with each other and maybe fuss at each other. Children are children. We all have, uh, you know, Adam's sinful nature. You don't have to teach a child to be naughty. You have to teach him to be good. Uh, people are not naturally born innocent. No, uh, we're naturally born as Adam's children. And we need to be cleansed by the second Adam, the last Adam. That's what he came to do, what we couldn't do. But imagine yourself as one of those brothers and sisters and, uh, and uh, you're tussling or arguing or something. And, being mean to each other and then your mother comes in and says stop this what are you doing why can't you be more like your big brother can you imagine being held to that standard growing up whoa well it was the way he treated them. oh no it wasn't the way Jesus treated them he treated them perfectly what an older brother to be able to have but you see human heart can still go the other way, right in the middle of the presence of that which is best and good. And it's because of what's in the heart. God only can change the heart. He does it by his spirit through his word, as we shall see. And because of that, you see, it's possible to dismiss Christ's work as deranged or even diabolical, demonic. Verse 21, his own family said, he's beside himself, he's out of his mind. Verse 22, the teachers of the law who opposed him went a lot further and took it really bad. They said, he's got a demon. The teaching and wisdom he has comes from the devil. The, the uh, authenticating miraculous works that he does by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that comes from the devil too. And in effect, they were saying, the Holy Spirit is the devil. Can you imagine? And that brings Jesus' response. The only thing that Jesus said can never be forgiven.
theologians have wrestled with that. <laughs> have a hard time with anything being unforgivable. But we need to understand what's meant here. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and we say no, he may continue to pursue us for a time. He did for Jonah, and I confess he did for me, and I am so thankful he did. And he has for others, the prodigal sons and daughters, and may yet for the uh, daughter of the missionary parents that, that we spoke about at the beginning of our message today. He may yet do that. But the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit as I understand it from here and other places, is the final rejection of the work of the Spirit of God around us and in our own lives. When is that rejection final? Well, there is a point. I may not know it. You may not know it if you're the one in the process of rebelling. Jonah didn't know it. He didn't cross that line, I think the Lord that I had not apparently because I'm here the Lord worked in my heart when does someone cross that line God knows and it's at the point where God determines his spirit will no longer strive with that man or woman it's a serious thing to reject the word of God and the work of his spirit you know, it's even possible to attempt to curtail the ministry of Christ by unbelieving intervention. Verse 21, Jesus' own family went to take charge of him. You know, that's uh, intervention, isn't it? <laughs> He's not competent. There's something will matter with him. Verse 31, they sent someone to call him. <laughs> now that call is summons. <laughs> Get out here. Now. Um, and of course the Jewish leaders' opposition for Jesus also motivated them, but in a different way. They didn't want to save him from himself. They wanted just to kill him. Now we need to understand that in Jesus' day, the firstborn son of a widowed parent had special responsibility to take care of his mother and his younger brothers and sisters. That's true. That's why he got a double portion of the inheritance in the Old Testament law of Moses. Well, what's Jesus doing then? Is he violating that? No, <laughs> because the purpose of that is until such time as the other brothers and sisters themselves are also of age to take care of themselves, provide for themselves, and to help prepare, provide for their mother. They're not exempt from the, the, uh, fifth, the uh, fifth commandment that they are to honor their father and mother. Intervention in cases of psychological incompetence due to addiction or mental condition such as nervous breakdown is, is something we hear about from time to time as, and sometimes consider necessary. But there's a problem often with the misuse of that under totalitarian governments. For example, the old totalitarian um, uh, communist governments and still true in North Korea and still true in some other places uh, where they 
want to silence a critic of the government or a reformer by locking them up in an insane asylum where they can't talk with anybody and where they're drugged into a stupor and kept in isolation. And the purpose isn't to help them. The purpose is to, uh, under the, the, uh, the pretense of doing that, actually it's intended to crush any resistance to their totalitarian misrule. Well, in a way, we think that's horrible, but it was a misuse of intervention with Jesus and his family. Apparently, as you'll see, even including his own mother, who had received those revelations from the angel before his birth who had sung that great hymn uh, that she apparently composed drawing on the Old Testament imagery and, and scriptures that we call the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. His own mother. Well, she undoubtedly loved him. She knew he was very special, but she was very concerned for him. He didn't even have time to eat. He's being overwhelmed. He seems to be acting in a very different way. Of course, ever since he'd come back from uh, being baptized by John in the Jordan and, and spending 40 days in the wilderness. Since then, he's come back and he's left his, uh, his shop. He's gone out as an itinerant preacher. He's gathered a band of people around him. He's doing some marvelous but markedly strange in their eyes things and she's wondering what's happening and she loves him, she misses him, she's concerned for him and I suspect, I text doesn't tell us, I suspect that Jesus' brothers, his half-brothers, got her to go along with them. But it was his brothers, we're told, not his mother, who didn't believe. So they are most likely the instigators here. But I want to point out that only the Spirit of God can change a heart of unbelief into a heart of trusting faith. In verses 27 through 29 of our text we read, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can rob his house. Now, Jesus is not here uh, encouraging robbery. He's using an image here that you can't take possession of something held tightly under the control of something, someone else who claims it as their possession, unless you overcome them. And the context is Satan. Satan's activity among the uh, covenant people of God. And Jesus is saying what has to happen is that power inside to, that causes us to rebel and, and prompts us and works on the sin in our hearts, that power has to be broken. Satan's grip has to be cut. And Jesus is saying there's only one person who can do that. The person of the Holy Spirit as Christ enters their life. 
Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, we read these words. I, God says through Ezekiel, I will give them, his people, an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Changed heart. It's crafted by the Spirit of God within us. You know, a termite can no more be converted to behave like a butterfly than iron ore can choose to float. It just can't be done. Neither can a human heart, fallen and in rebellion against God, turn instead to God of itself. It must be regenerated by the Spirit of the living God. In Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel goes on to, to describe a vision he had where, where he was transported into the midst of a very dry valley and it was filled with bones. Very dry bones. You know what it means to be very dry? It means the marrow's gone, all the flesh is gone. In other words, there's nothing left, it seems like, but these cracked and parched bones. And God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, what would your instinctive answer be? Mine would probably have been, of course not. <laughs> Ezekiel was smarter than I. He had a good answer. He said, Lord, you know the answer to that. And God said, prophesy over these bones. And so as he began to, to speak in God's name, we're told there was the spirit moved. That same word, ruach, in, in the Hebrew, spirit and wind, okay, and breath, all one word used different ways. And the, sometimes the, it's used with a double entendre is here. So that what is spoken of is wind is breath for the new creation and is the Spirit's work at the same time. And it moves across. And you hear rattle, 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 rattle. All these bones bumping up against each other, coming, joining bone to bone. Sinews come over them, flesh covers, skin covers. You have an army of corpses. They're not bones anymore. You can see they're people, but they're dead. It's not enough simply to have the outward symbols of life. And God says, Ezekiel, son of man, prophesy over them again. And Ezekiel does. And he commands them in God's name to live. And the spirit, we're told, the breath of God, just like at creation, when God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and he became a living soul. So the breath of God, the Spirit of God entered into them. They stood on their feet, an exceedingly large army. What was God's point to Ezekiel in that vision? And that's not something that physically happened, but Ezekiel perceived it in his vision as very real to him. 
God was teaching Ezekiel a lesson, and through him us, that God's able to do the impossible. He can change the hardened heart. I have learned in my years and years of ministry that often the people I think that are closest to making a profession of faith in Christ are the farthest. And often those people that seem hardened and very intellectual or very urbane or whatever, sophisticated and, and contemptuous of Christianity and the gospel, those that I would have thought were the farthest from any chance of being reached for Christ are those that in the hearing of the gospel repent and believe and their lives are changed. And my jaw drops. And I have to say, Lord, it's your spirit sovereignly working by his work through your word that changes our hearts. So we don't give up on the prodigal in our family. And we don't give up on our neighbor or fellow worker. We pray, we live before them, we love them, and we share the gospel. But the Spirit of God also moves those whose hearts he changes to desire to live in a way that pleases God. Verse 33 of our text in Mark chapter 3. Whoever does God's will, Jesus says. 1 John 3.23 explains that. John was present that day, you know. He writes, and this is his, Christ's command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. That's the Father's command to us, to believe in his son and to love one another as an expression of that relationship and communion with his son. And as we do that, we can watch and see God at work among us. The Spirit of God, you see, transforms hearts through confronting them with a reality and the power of Christ's resurrection. Now we'll look at Acts 1.14. You know, when I uh, realized for the first time, uh, not too many years ago actually, after reading this passage again and again, uh, first chapter of Acts, uh, uh, what the disciples went through after the resurrection of the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus and his appearances. And I just, you know, it talks about how they were all together in the upper room praying. And we come along to verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. I said, yeah, I can, I can just envision that. Uh, along with the women, well, there were women at his, at his uh, crucifixion when the, all but John of the disciples had, had uh, run away. There were women at his burial and at his tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Of course, I can see that there would be women there. And then it says, and Mary. The word and is one of those words which in the original language can mean, be translated as a, in particular, in particular, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I think to myself, of course, where else would she be? And then those last four words in the NIV, at least, and with his brothers. <laughs> it hit me. 
uh, like I do before, across the face. Pow. Whoa, wait a minute. What are they doing there? You see, they'd opposed him, as far as we know, right up to the time of his resurrection, uh, right up to the time of his crucifixion. They weren't at the cross supporting him. His mother was. Where were his brothers? Well, they distanced themselves from Jesus. So what are they doing here? How do we explain it? Ah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ. He says it's one of those things that is of first importance. Did you know that everything in the Bible is true and is important, but there are things which are absolutely primary and first importance. Paul says so. And that includes the death, substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not something that can be compromised. And uh, he lists, the Apostle Paul lists the resurrection appearances of Jesus. Let's just read that. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, beginning of verse 3, For I received what I passed on to you, he says that when he gives us the communion service, doesn't he? He says, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Now listen. And that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Now, that's corroboration by multiple witnesses. And then he says, verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as a one abnormally born. Uh, we could preach a series on just those verses, but the point for us today is that what had happened between Jesus' crucifixion, where his brothers wanted no part of him any more than many of the other Jews who had shouted away with him. What happened between then in chapter 1, verse 14 of Acts, and his brothers continually in prayer. Whoa! What happened between there? What could possibly have made the difference? And the answer is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. Jesus' resurrection in his power and glory and in his appearance, <coughs> personally and visibly to them, prior to his ascension. <coughs> Pardon me. Neither death nor unbelief could stand in the presence of the risen Lord. Isn't that interesting? In Jesus' public ministry, only three times is he listed as being, recorded as being in the presence of someone dead. Did you know that? Just three times he's recorded during his public ministry of being in the presence of someone dead. They all have one thing in common. <laughs> Death was destroyed. Jesus raised them to life. 
after his resurrection, unbelief could not stand. It's said wrongly that Jesus only appeared to those who believed in him anyway. That wasn't true, and the proof of that is James and his brothers. <laughs> no, but it is true that after he appeared to anyone, they no longer had any doubt. Unbelief is conquered by the appearance of the uh, risen Christ. In fact, James had a subsequent prominent role along with the apostles in the leading of the Jerusalem church, as we shall see, and so did Jude, his brother. You see, God intends those whose hearts and lives he has changed to live before the world in loving community. Verse 34, my brother, my sister, my mother, those who are united to each other because of their their uh, shared loyalty with, to Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit, God's Spirit, lives in you? John chapter 13, verse 35, in the upper room, the Lord Jesus says to the, his disciples on the night he's betrayed, he says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. God therefore transforms communities through the faithful witness of those whose hearts and lives he has changed. That's the wider context of the New Testament. James, you see, is listed along with Peter and John as pillars of the church in Galatians 2, verse 9. Now somebody may say, well, wait a minute, that's James's brother of John, the son of Zebedee. And they were close to Jesus. They were in the inner circle. Yes, they certainly were. Peter, James, and John, disciples of Jesus. But James was the first of the twelve to be martyred by the sword, killed by King Herod who also tried to do the same thing to Peter, and God delivered Peter. He hadn't delivered James. Why? For some reason, it honored the Lord to give, bestow that privilege of martyrdom on James. And it actually strengthened the church by driving them to united, concerted prayer. And we read about James again, Acts chapter uh, 15, for example, and many other places. He's now presiding over the cluster of churches in Jerusalem, collectively called the church in Jerusalem. Our pastor has just finished before his uh, 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 vacation and then study leave, and he just finished before I began this series, he finished a series preaching through a New Testament epistle, the epistle of, oh yes, James, <laughs> the Lord's brother, the one who didn't believe in him, who wanted to stop his ministry by intervening, who was not at the cross and had nothing to do with his older brother's ministry and all he stood for. Yes, that James. What happened? Entirely turned around. The moral compass and direction of his life was 180 degrees transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The moment he's met the risen Savior. And then the church, what? Spreads. 
spreads from Jerusalem after the persecution begins in Jerusalem, uh, following the martyrdom of Stephen, the church is scattered and, and uh, they go to Samaria. Well, Jesus had said they would be witnesses in Samaria and there they are. And after Samaria, they're scattered further and they go to Antioch and begin to share the gospel with Gentiles to share the gospel with Samaritans. Oh, I don't know. You know they live across the tracks. They're, they're not quite pure. Mm. That's not a barrier to Jesus. Thank the Lord. And then a bigger breach than that, you know, the ones who are really distant are the <coughs> Gentiles, like me. And the gospel comes, and the church grows, and people from the church in Jerusalem, commissioned by James and the elders and apostles, go to Samaria to make sure Peter and John are sent as a deputation. Later, another deputation is sent to Antioch, and who goes? Silas and Barnabas. We talked last week about Barnabas, a Levite transformed. What's happening? What's happening is a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Jesus said, you will be my, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, that's important. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Our God is a missionary God. Finally, God uses trans, transformed people to build his church. We've seen how God uses James to write the epistle of James. Christianity is not a private system of philosophy like many of the ancient pagan religions, like Zen Buddhism or like uh, uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy. It's not a system of ethical behavior only. Rather, it incorporates believers in a personal savior together into a living, learning, growing, and interactive community, which the Bible calls the called out ones. Oh, it's the church. That's what church means. Many world religions revere those who live as hermits, withdrawing from the outside world, living as a recluse. That's come into Christianity. I mean, that happens in Hinduism today, you know. It happens in branches of Buddhism and happens in many parts of the world. Even Islam has its, its uh, version of it. And it entered in the uh, 5th and 6th centuries into Middle Eastern Christianity under the Byzantine Empire. There was a man named Simon. He's nicknamed Stylites. Why? Because he was up on a stilt. <laughs> he was up on a, a pole, a little platform on the top, and he stayed there raising the pole somehow periodically each year till it was, I don't know, 60 feet tall. And he's living high on the, for 36 years, essentially not coming down. Had a rope he'd let down and pull up a basket of food that people who thought he was special would come and bring for him. People thought, whoa, they'd come to hear anything he had to say from that pedestal. Withdraw from the world, it'll make you dirty. Get together with God, just you and God. Pull away from everything and stay there, stay there, stay there. And he had disciples who went out and did the same thing. And that's lamentable, you know. 
wrongly thinking that we can escape the influence of the world by withdrawing from the world, because we can't withdraw from the world's already having influenced us inside, and we can't withdraw from our own sinful inclinations. Besides, Simon Stylites failed to see that sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness and character and relationships, is something we do together. And he utterly missed the command of Jesus to disciple the nations. Part of our discipling the nations is growing together, being a loving family with one another. Oh, we have too many differences. You think Jesus' disciples didn't have differences? You're going to put Simon the Zealot, who uh, came out of a party that was called out of a party that, to Jesus, but the party he was a part of, a political party, uh, was the radical revolutionary uh, terrorist organization of the time. Uh, they used the sword and would, they would kill not only uh, occupying Roman troops, but they would kill anybody uh, like uh, publicans or tax collectors who they viewed as, uh, whom they viewed as, as uh, compromisers, as people who were uh, collaborating with the enemy. Jesus called him to himself, the Prince of Peace, who tells Peter to put away his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is about to be taken. He calls Simon Stylites, and along with him, he calls a fellow named Levi, who is not a Levite as far as we know. He's just his name, Levi, or that we know him as Matthew. Oh, yes, he writes a gospel <laughs> that begins our New Testament canon. Can you imagine those two together? You have fishermen. You have people who do many other kinds of things all thrown together. Why would Jesus do that? That's a, that's a recipe for conflict and disaster. You're gonna, I mean, that's like putting uh, the naughtiest people in, uh, in the school together in one class. You pity the teacher. Jesus did that intentionally because he changes lives. He pulls us together because it's the bumping up a little bit against each other and then responding in a way that is teachable and is centered on Christ is one of the ways we sand one another's rough edges. And you can't do that as a hermit in the mountains of Alaska. I need you, brothers and sisters. I do. And somehow you need me. I don't know how. God does. We grow. And we grow as a body, as a community, transformed hearts, transformed lives, transformed community.